This is the companion discussion to Ruth chapter 3. I'm Joshua Savage, producer of the Book of Ruth. I'm joined in these episodes by Elijah DeYoung, recent graduate of Mid-America Reformed Seminary. Elijah has served as a pastoral intern at OPC churches in Joliet, Illinois, and Concho, Arizona. He is currently serving as a year-long intern at the OPC Church in Grants Pass, Oregon. In these chapter-by-chapter discussions, Elijah and I will discuss the narrative and theology of the Book of Ruth. In this episode, we explore the Old Testament law of the kinsman redeemer, its importance in the Ruth narrative, and its dark history in Boaz's ancestry. Naomi's ambiguous plan to move along God's providence, and why Ruth asks Boaz to spread out his wing over her. So, chapter three is right in the middle of the drama, and a lot happens in this chapter. It's a very for lack of a better word, it's a very interesting chapter, um, especially from Naomi's point of view, but there's also some profoundly beautiful moments in this chapter as well. And so I would like to quote Ferguson again. Again, this is from his book, um, Faithful God, the Exposition of the Book of Ruth. And this is from page 83. He says, chapter one focuses on Naomi and what God is beginning to do through her in the life of Ruth. The second chapter brings together Ruth and Boaz as the spotlight shines upon the gracious characteristics that God has worked in them. Now the spotlight falls upon Boaz and his deep-seated godliness and piety. The story is going somewhere. And so that's what we're going to talk about. Where is this story going? And I think the first thing we need to discuss is the whole idea of a kinsman redeemer. This is something that's very foreign um, to me and most likely to many people out there. So what is a kinsman redeemer and why is this so important in the story of Ruth? Well, where do you start? <laughs> uh, there's so many. Okay. So for instance, you know, we've talked about Deuteronomy 25. Uh, it's such a long explanation of exactly how the ins and outs of this works. And that really comes to bear on uh, how Boaz behaves in chapter four. But in the meantime, you know, there's this idea that, okay, so we need a future. Naomi needs a future. Her land is gone. Her livelihood is gone. Her husband, her, her sons are all dead. What is she going to do? Not only what is she going to do, but where does her line, her husband's line go? So then we have another one of God's laws that comes in. It's a gracious provision. And that takes us back to uh, you know, back in the day <laughs> when the law was given. Um, and Deuteronomy 25 says, uh, you know, the, the key verses is, if a brother dwells together and one of them dies and has no son, the widow of the dead man shall not be married to a stranger. Uh, the husband's brother shall take her as his wife and perform the duty of the husband's brother to her. And their firstborn will succeed to the name of his dead brother so that the name will not be blotted out in Israel. This is how much God cares about the perpetuation of life, the, the continuation of, uh, you know, the, the generations. 
God cares so much that he's willing to throw in this. To, to us, it's a very bizarre law. Like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> that was not under the, the uh, in-law duty <laughs> you know, that I signed up for. But um, it, it's there. And fascinating, fascinating tidbit here is we look back, and one of the biggest examples of this working out the wrong way is Judah and Tamar. That is interesting. So talk about that. What, what happened in this instance? Absolutely. So Judah and Tamar, um, Tamar is married to one of Judah's sons. Let me see if I can find, uh, now I'm, I'm Googling frantically the exact verse. Yes. Yeah, so a very unusual, um, again, it's, it's something that's probably not preached on very often, <laughs> although it should, because it's, it has such direct impact onto the line of Christ. But you're right. There's the story of Joseph in Genesis. And then there's this detour with this whole nefarious affair with Judah and Tamar before we get to the resolution of the Joseph story. Yeah. And, and in, in Genesis 38, we see uh, you know, Tamar being uh, married uh, to Judah's uh, firstborn. And uh, his, his firstborn is named Ur, E-R. <laughs> Such a weird name. But he's, he's named Ur, and uh, he's not pleasing to God, so God kills Ur. And so then we have the second in line. And this is, the, this is a direct uh, you know, a follow-through of this. Even though the law has not been given, this is already in place. So we see um, Onan. The second, the second brother come in, and Oman is just a, a bad dude, and he does not want to uh, take up the duty that's been given to him. He doesn't want to marry Tamar. He doesn't want to, uh, quote unquote, like endanger uh, his inheritance. Uh, so he he rebels, and God strikes him down. So then, what do we see next? You know, we see uh, the third child being hidden away, and Judah says, "Oh, don't." Don't try to invoke your law and don't try to invoke your right to uh, one of these brothers because, you know, because I don't want to basically. So Tamar has to take matters into her own hands and she tricks Judah into eventually giving her an heir. Um, but this is, this is a case in point of like how badly this can, this can blow up if people are not willing to uh, take responsibility to obey God's law, you know? So, what we see with Boaz and Ruth is, you know, hopefully things going in the right direction. Naomi notices, all right, so this man's a kinsman redeemer. We have hope. He should be able to marry Ruth. This is where it gets interesting. He's going to marry Ruth kind of as a replacement for Naomi. So instead of Naomi, uh, marrying Naomi, he's going to marry uh, Ruth and keep the line of, of Naomi, Elimelech, and, and Malon and Kilion going. And I think what's interesting about this as well, it just strikes me that, again, this is a story directly in the line of Boaz, because Tamar, as you, as you say, tricks Judah and actually um, sleeps with Judah in order to perpetuate that heir. And that son is Perez, which yes. is the direct lineage of Boaz himself. Yeah. So if anyone is going to be impressed with the... Um, yeah the rigor of this, it's going to be Boaz. Although it's interesting that as we'll talk about in chapter four, uh, the other kinsman redeemer who's closer than Boaz is still not having it. So there's yeah. a lot that goes on there. 
fascinating point. And we're going to get into this, I'm sure, in the genealogy. I, I am stealing my own thunder here. So. <laughs> but in later genealogies, nobody talks about Elimelech and Naomi. The that people is who are fascinating. Born. Isn't that interesting? So really, you know, while yes, this, this is safety and, and prosperity for uh, Naomi and, and her line, the, the inheritance of Boaz is not put into any uh, danger. It, in fact, it's, it's brought into the limelight, and we'll get into that more later. But, um, yeah, so the, yes. the laws of inheritance and, and kinsman redeemer really actually help Boaz here in an unexpected way. Yes, and so once again, we can see, and as the, the writer brilliantly sets out in chapter four, we see the bigger picture. But in the smaller picture, Naomi probably from hearing Boaz's name is already seeing, okay, this is the way, this is the way that we can be, uh, be blessed and, and enter security. And in fact, I believe she even says that at the very beginning of chapter three, Naomi says, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you? Mm-hmm. And so this is probably in her mind, Boaz is a relative uh, therefore, we're going to have this plan. So Naomi is thinking, this is what God is going to do. But yes. now we get into the very interesting decision. Does this remind you of anybody? Like, okay, so this is what God is going to do, and I'm going to help it along. It's Sarah. You remember Sarah at the beginning? She's promised this. Yes. This She's like, okay, how can I make this? How can I make God's promise work? Like, you know, not really trusting God to work it out on his own to say, okay, so God obviously needs me to step in and help him. I'm going to give my maidservant. Yeah. And this happens over and over. Oh my goodness. It happens so often, embarrassingly often in the old Testament, you know, God promised this. How am I going to help God do this? <laughs> and therefore it happens so often in our lives as well. <laughs> we think we know what God is going to do. And even if we have an inkling of what he might do. We want to take it upon ourselves. Now we can do what we want to do to make this happen in our time and not in God's time. Oh, it's such a reminder to us to examine like what our motives are. Are we honestly trying to humble ourselves and say, you know, (laughs) to quote the song, Jesus, take the wheel. (laughs) Jesus, you have the wheel. Um, You know, are we trying to say, Jesus, you, uh, God, you have this planned and you're going to accomplish this more beautifully than I can ever imagine. Or are we trying to say, I know what I think God wants and how am I going to take charge? It really comes down to, is God our God or are we wanting a hybrid of God plus us? And God works it all out for his good, but I think there's a really dangerous thing that's happening in terms of um, of the mess potentially this could go into. So let's talk about this and, and uh, it's really a fascinating part of the story because it's been interpreted in so many ways. So to get the, the idea here, this is what Naomi says to Ruth. This is, this is what she wants Ruth to do. So at the very beginning of, of chapter three, she says, my daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now, Boaz, is he not our relative with whose young women you were with? Behold, he is winnowing barley at the threshing floor tonight. Therefore, wash yourself and anoint yourself and put on your best garment and go down to the threshing floor, but do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. 
Then it shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies. There you shall go in and uncover his feet and lie down and he will tell you what you should do. So what is this plan? I don't think Naomi really has any idea of what could go down. Remember at this point, really all she knows is probably uh, that Boaz is the Kingsman Redeemer. She might know from the, the gossip, you know, grapevine uh, in Bethlehem <laughs> that he's a good person. But the language of this is just so ambiguous. It's ambiguous statement after ambiguous statement. If, the, if I could put one word to sum up this entire chapter, ambiguous. And it's meant to make you think and reread and clutch your head and say, what just happened? Uh, <laughs> and really what she says is, you know, wash up, uh, wait till he's done eating and drinking. So washing and perfuming. So she's saying, all right, make sure you're, you're fresh. All right. So that's step one. And then she says, wait till he's done eating and drinking. Now you're a, you're a hard worker. Yeah. Out in the fields, you're working and you're hot and you just want to have, uh, a nice relaxing evening before the next day of work. You're probably not going to sip a little sip of water. You're going to probably have a little bit of wine. You know, you're probably just going to um, try to relax as much as possible. And so she's sending him, uh, she's sending Ruth into potentially the arms of, of, a, of a drunkard. You know, she doesn't know that. I don't think she's necessarily saying he's probably going to be drunk and will play with that, but she's, she doesn't know what his condition is going to be. And then uh, she says, wait till he lies down and, and uncover his feet. And there's so many different ways that people have tried to translate this. Uh, you know, a lot of times I just think that some of the commentators have their mind in the gutter and they're just trying to make this as bad as, as they can. Um, but at the same time, at its very, like if you read this the most kindly, um, she's going to a secluded place with a man she's not married to uh, who has, uh, who's feeling good either just because he's eaten a ton or maybe he's drinking, drink, he's, he's imbibed. <laughs> um, and she's removing a layer of his clothing, whether that's just like the, the end of his cloak and covering herself with it and, uh, bringing herself closer to him in that. So a very, and what's the payoff? She says, he'll tell you what to do. She doesn't know what's going to happen next. So just take a step back here and think about the theme of God's sovereignty. God knows every single detail of what is going to happen because of this. He's using Naomi's foolishness and her ambiguous plan, and he knows every single detail of what will happen to Ruth. He keeps her through all of this. Well, and this is what's so fascinating, I think, because... The, the the brilliance of the story once again is that we have these main characters that we know from seeing in these instances, but they don't know each other, especially with Naomi. Now maybe she had some contact with him before they went out um, to the land of Moab, but that would have been over 10 years before. Yep. Um, we have seen that Boaz is a man after God's own heart. We have seen, that he is an upstanding mighty man, as you said in a previous episode. We've also seen Ruth and that she is a woman after God's own heart. And so the, the ambiguity is, is profound, but it also leaves space to kind of see how each character, each person in the narrative is working. Naomi, I think 
most likely at best has misguided motives. Mm. But Ruth, what she says, which is not what, what Naomi told her to do. She didn't say, you know, when he finds you out, say that you're a kinsman redeemer and, and cover me. But Ruth says that, which is fascinating to me. So it shows that whatever Ruth thought of the plan, she knew what she was going to say. She was not going to try and seduce him. She was going to say, I am Ruth casting herself upon him as a kinsman redeemer, which Naomi didn't know, presumably that Ruth would do, but, but Ruth knew Boaz on the other hand, I think this is a profound uh, testament to his character because like you're saying, he was eating and drinking and it's the middle of the night, which is typically not a great time to be confronted with a manner of temptation. But what he does is that he sees her once again (laughs) for who she is, not what she's done. He's not offended apparently, or he knows that it's, it's something that she's doing for the right reasons. And then he responds, blessed are you of Yahweh, my daughter, for you have shown more kindness at the end than at the beginning in that you did not go after young men, whether poor or rich. Do not fear all that you request. I will do for you mm. for the people of my town. Know that you are a virtuous woman. Yeah. So it's a, it's, I think probably is the turning point of the whole narrative. I guess, would you agree that this maybe this scene is probably the turning point of the whole book? Yeah, absolutely. And, and he evokes the, uh, the idea of Hesed again. He says, you've made this, gr- this last Hesed greater than the first. And this is God's faithfulness. You know, she's made it greater than, you know, just, she's compounding God's work in her and in him. If that makes sense. You know, he, she yes. keeps layering on by approaching this very bizarre directive from Naomi with such grace and virtue. It is amazing that Naomi plans out up to this, this point where, you know, Boaz is going to tell her what to do and Ruth obeys her down to the letter until she responds. Like she goes off script. She says, I'm Ruth, your servant, spread your wings over your servant for your redeemer. That's the only thing that Ruth does that deviates from the plan. But that right there is the reminder to, to Boaz that he has a responsibility and that he is standing before God who prescribed the idea of Redeemer. And he's under God's wings himself. So, you know, this whole book literally writing on the idea of loving kindness, but I think even more definitely on the idea of, the wings of the redeemer. It all pivots on this. You know, what is Boaz's response going to be? And once again, it shows the wisdom that Boaz has. Um, he he makes this promise to her, but he also says, "I am not the nearest." Yeah. So so if he will do this, then then I even though he's obviously very interested in Ruth, he will let him do it. Um, it's also amazing that he says, "But stay here, lie down until morning." And I do think Matthew Henry, reading his commentary on this, I think he probably hits it on the head when he says, I don't want this single woman to be a seen at night, which would have been scandalous for the people, but also it's dangerous. I mean, he has already told her that he, that he's commanded his young men not to touch her. And that's in the daytime, much yeah. less in the nighttime. So he does still say stay until morning, but he then commands, do not make it known that she came here. He's trying to protect her reputation as much as possible. Um, yeah. 
And of well, course, as, as Sigler Ferguson says, the humorous image of her coming back with six ephahs of barley in the morning. Um, and, and Greg Ball, who narrates this, also points out very, very well that Naomi's answer at the very end uh, of this chapter is equally ambiguous. Yeah. She says, who are you, my daughter? <laughs> yes. Are you married? <laughs> what, who are you? Uh, is, is, are you Mrs. Boaz? <laughs> yes, exactly. And so I think it's a good place to end when you're talking about the wing here. Um, I've seen some translations in this interchange in the middle of the night that, that Ruth says, spread the, the corner of your garment over me. Um, I think the original has also the idea of a wing, which would match the theme of chapter two, of course, as well. Um, so what, what, do you, what do you think of that? I guess the, the corner of the garment, should it be corner of the garment? Should it be wing? Is there a difference? Yeah. Well, okay. So I, I do think this is the, the whole idea of ambiguous language my answer is almost always, well, why can't it be both? Because <laughs> I yes. love the idea of a good pun. Um, but of course she says, uh, she asks her, uh, Boaz to, to cover her, uh, but also to redeem her. These two are going hand in hand. Um, the language she uses is very ambiguous. Uh, there's one other place where this is used in a similar fashion. Um, and that's in Ezekiel 16 verses eight. Let me quickly look that up. Um, and read that it's it's a fascinating little bit uh and as you're looking that up ezekiel 16 is a profoundly vivid extended parable um of of god and his people it's it's a really um harrowing read but also a, a, a at the end of the day an amazing picture of god's love and kindness I know this is not the sort of uh, not the sort of passage you probably want to just be like you know reading <laughs> to your <laughs> to your kids. I don't know it, every passage can't be, um, but it, it definitely does. It, it's got so much raw emotion to it. So uh, sixteen verse eight. You know when I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you are at an age for love, and I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God. You became mine. Now, my takeaway from that is uh, casting the, the corner of a cloak over or the, the edge of a cloak over, is a, it is a, a method of proposing marriage. Um, I can't remember if uh, Pastor Ferguson goes into that or not. Um, but at the very least, this image is used elsewhere of a garment being used to say, all right, you are, uh, I'm proposing to you, I'm covering you, you are, you are uh, now uh, under my protection as a, a spouse almost. Um, so that's one way you could read this. Uh, but then you also realize that she's echoing the language that Boaz used in 2 verse 12, Ruth 2 verse 12. You know, she's saying, you said this to me, that I'm under the, the wing of God, and now, you know, in the same way, cover me with your protection. Isn't it amazing that this, this wonderful daughter of God, a, a Moabitess by birth, knows that she can, she has every right to call on a man of God to protect her honor. You know, so Ruth here calls Boaz to his, his duty as a, a redeemer and asks him to spread the wing over, which has so many different levels, so many different feathers. Um, 
And he responds, really, if you think about it, he responds to every single one. He's a very perceptive man. He responds to uh, the idea of a marriage proposal. And he says, okay, I understand. I'm your redeemer. I Marriage is involved in this, and I'm going to be honoring God's law on this subject. But also he, he takes this challenge to be pure and this challenge to protect a defenseless uh, young lady, and he does so. Like, carefully read Ruth as a whole and see that some characters change, but Boaz and Ruth do not change so much because they are, you know, they're, they're the moral constants. God is using them, and it's not like Boaz dips here. You know, it's not like Boaz takes advantage and they just continue on into chapter four without mentioning Boaz uh, you know, taking advantage of Ruth. That's not his character. He's the, the righteous, godly man. He's the man who takes compassion. He's the man who has a clear head in the middle of the night. And he has this love uh, for this woman that is pure and does not take advantage. And he continues on by keeping his word, by going to, uh, going to the, the city gate. And, and we'll see what happens you know, with that later. And I think to, to kind of tie this up as well, the image of the wings, um, it's, such a, it's such a beautiful image that is used in the Psalms. It's used, as you mentioned in the overview episode of, of Jesus himself as he looks um, at Jerusalem. But I think one of them that sticks in my mind is Psalm 17, 6 through 9. David says, I have called upon you for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. Show your marvelous loving kindness by your right hand. O you who save those who trust in you from those who rise up against them. Keep me as the apple of your eye. Hide me under the shadow of your wings from the wicked who oppress me, from my deadly enemies who surround me. And so David's uh, ancestor does this for Ruth. But of course, as we're thinking about Christ, we also see how he has overshadowed us with his wings, how he has protected us from the wicked who oppress us, the deadly enemies that surround us, not the least of which is the devil um, and the wickedness of our own sin. And so uh, Boaz, of course, as a real person, but also a man of God is, is inspiring to us, but it also points in this profoundly beautiful way to Christ as the ultimate protector. I think as Isaiah says in 32, a man, which is pointing to Christ, a man shall be a culvert from the tempest, a hiding place, um, the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. The Book of Ruth is read by Greg Ball, cover design by Seth Haller, music by Scott Buckley, You can hear more of his amazing music at scottbuckley.com.au. The Book of Ruth and this podcast are produced by me, Josh Savage. To listen to our recording or read our translation of all four chapters of Ruth, visit our ReadyMag site, linked in the show notes below. Subscribe to our feed on iTunes Podcasts and Spotify Podcasts.